Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We're at such an early stage of understanding how the brain works, and it's really cool that we've come across psychedelics, which are actually, you know, natural psychedelics have been used for millennia for therapeutic purposes um, through ancient cultures. And then things like MDMA was actually being developed as a um, therapeutic tool before it became an illegal drug. Like it was being by psychiatrists for couple therapy, and then it escaped the lab, and then it became illegal. So we're almost... We're kind of going back to the future in some ways. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Our new sponsor, as of last week, is Tank. So sending the Tank team a big thanks for their support for the next few months. If you haven't heard about Tank, make sure you check out last week's episode with co-founder and executive director, Angus Crowther. In that episode, you'll learn about what effective government engagement looks like for for-purpose organisations. You can learn more about Tank by heading to their website, which is linked in the show notes. Now, for those of you who are long-time Humans of Purpose folks, we used to run a monthly EDM or email newsletter called The Purpose until about 2020, which had about 2,000 readers. I stopped writing this one after I felt the format got a bit stale and it wasn't adding a whole lot of value. But I've since missed writing and have felt that what's needed is a new approach and format that excites me and hopefully excites you too. So step forward our new weekly substack or emailed blog piece entitled The Hedgehog's Nest. This is where each week I'll zone in on the biggest ideas that emanate from a guest quote on Humans of Purpose. I'll unpack it, analyze it and share my thoughts on it too. Last week's post looked at the nature of work and how much values alignment matters. This week's upcoming post will look at how we harness the morning to give us the best possible day, drawing on insights from previous guests. These posts come out every Thursday morning, are free, and I'd love you to be part of this to enjoy the content. To learn more about the Hedgehog's Nest, just head to hedgehogsnest.substack.com or hit the link in our show notes. My guest today is Delara Bacecci, who is the Head of Communications at Silo. She's also a research fellow at the George Institute. Silo are an Australian-born startup developing next-generation therapeutics inspired by psychedelics from nature. They're using computational chemistry to optimize the pharmacology of next-generation compounds to produce medicines which are applicable to a broader patient population. Delara is a phenomenal science communicator and researcher and was the perfect person to teach me about the amazing world that's opening up around us, bringing new and innovative plant-based medicines to help people experiencing mental illness. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Delara as much as I did. Delara, I am thrilled to be with you this morning. Where do I find you? Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. I'm currently in Denver, Colorado in the US because Silo, I came here about two months ago to help Silo expand into the US. Oh, one of my favorite places, by the way, and um, very close to some of my favorite snowfields too in uh, in Colorado. Uh, so, you know, fantastic, uh, fantastic place. Um, and are you loving it there? 
Yeah, I'm loving it. We got here just as the Denver Nuggets won the NBA, so that was really fun. I'm looking oh. forward to experiencing the winter here. So if you're ever in town skiing, please let us know and we can hit the slopes together. Oh, that is that is an invitation you might get our listeners and certainly myself taking up. So thank you very much for that. How exciting. And what a place to be. But look, um, I'm really keen to get into your background and story. It's it's just terrific having a, a science communicator by by background and trade on the podcast and then somebody who's entered the realm of psychedelics too. So um, I'm just keen to hear all about um, everything. I had a quick look at your, your LinkedIn and uh, you're you were in in the pizza trade way back in the day as an assistant store manager and have certainly come a very long way. Probably a bit embarrassed that I saw that, but um, would love to hear the journey. And you don't have to start at crust. You start well beyond pizza if you like, but just um, your journey, university, academia, science, communication, um, the journey into um, cannabis and psychedelics and, yeah, just anything in between. <laughs> I mean, Pizza and cannabis, very related. <laughs> just going to throw that out there. Those jobs are so important, those high school jobs where you absolutely learn what work ethic is. So totally. I'm proud about my roots. Um, so I guess I describe myself as a like a scientist and a storyteller or a psychedelic scientist at a cocktail party to kick things off. But officially, I'm a research fellow at the George Institute, which is a nonprofit research organization. And there I help design and run clinical trials that test drugs like ketamine, psilocybin from magic mushrooms, and MDMA for different conditions. And our team there also works on initiatives that support like health equity and access. I'm also head, head of communications for Silo, which is a biotech company that's developing novel therapeutics that have been inspired by psychedelics found in nature. So my background, my research background is I have a PhD for research on medical cannabis for childhood epilepsy. And my undergrad undergrad was in like neuroscience and pharmacology, which is the study of drugs. Um, I've always been interested in the brain and human psychology. And like drugs are some of the best tools we have to understand what's going on in the mind. Um, and I guess during my undergrad, my dad got diagnosed with stage four cancer. So I naturally became interested in disease. And then when he became palliative, I became very curious about medical cannabis. And it was a really interesting time because it was illegal in Australia, but it was legal overseas, overseas in certain countries. And like that disconnect got me thinking like, why, why can, how can something be legal in one place and illegal in another place? And it made me realize that a lot of our laws aren't necessarily based on evidence. And there's a lot of work that can be done in this space. So when the opportunity came up to get into medical cannabis research, I jumped on it. Um, and after my PhD, I worked for a medical cannabis company uh, as a researcher and a science communicator. And that was really fun because it was something different. And it was really interesting to see the different ways that academia and industry work and um, really uh, trial out my science communication skills, which... Yeah, I'm also a bit of a, a science communications expert, and that kind of originated naturally from a place of passion and necessity. Um, I've worked in sort of SciCom roles uh, for industry at the medical cannabis company and for the University of Sydney. Um, and that kind of came from along the medical cannabis legalization journey, it made me appreciate that like having the evidence that shows something works isn't enough it's not always enough mm. to get a treatment being used mm. um especially if there's like preconceptions or stigma involved which there is with you know cannabis mental health and psychedelics 
like humans, they're intelligent beings, but we're actually fundamentally driven by emotion and intuition. Mm. So there's really, really important work to be done in this area about, you know, clearing the smoke and busting myths and providing accurate information to help support these effective treatments being accepted and adopted and utilized properly. Um, so I guess I can also go into how I got into psychedelic research, which... Sure. Let me stop um, you one sec, because I've got a yeah, few jumping sure. off points that I want to explore. First of all, I just want to share that I was also in the pizza business, and that's how I started out. So I was a pizza delivery guy uh, when I was 16, 17. And uh, yeah, we, we, we probably don't need to get into it anymore, but uh, I think I was making something like four dollars an hour um in two dollar gold coins and then i'd get some tips occasionally but the highlight of the night was always and and the reason people like the job is because when you finish your shift at about nine you got given a free pizza so that was the real perk so you know how so far have we come business lesson there. Like, <laughs> free pizza will get people working exactly all sorts of <laughs> pizza is relevant throughout life and it's a good jumping off point but I, I am um yeah really interested in just sort of what you've seen because of the journey just around when you know there's there's, a, that, there's an interesting time when things that we do as people that we think might be good for us are sort of like that at that pre-evidence stage where we think there might be something there we're not sure if there's something there so um, what tends to happen is there's a huge amount of stigma, criticism from the general uh, medical and research community. How was it sort of being at the the coalface early on? And, you know, what has your ex- spectrum of experience been around the changing attitudes and growing acceptance of um, these sorts of uh, therapies and treatments, especially with cannabis? It's been really interesting. And there's sort of three groups of people. There's like the fast movers and they're, for whatever reason, whether it's emotionally driven or they're very... Um, Data driven, they'll jump on something and utilize it. Most people fit in the middle, and that's with medical cannabis. We saw the shift once uh, CBD, which is like a component from cannabis, got FDA approved for childhood epilepsy. And like once something is FDA approved, it is a legitimate medicine. And once that shift happened, because I guess most people don't have strong feelings and they naturally switched over to accepting it more. And that was a really pivotal moment. Um, and then there's, there are the people that have very strong feelings against it and they're going to be very hard to sway. And medical cannabis is a really interesting example because it was driven by patient advocacy. Like there was Lucy Haslam in, in Australia and her son was palliative. Um, and they wanted to trial medical cannabis for him and they couldn't because at that point it was illegal. And she has done such an amazing job of just rallying the government. They created dance law and helped those patients get access to these treatments and like there is a concept that like everyone has the right to try these things especially if you've gone down and tried everything that's available and you've run out of options oh it's it's just unbelievable and and i mean an interesting distinction to make is that uh with australian and maybe global attitudes there's no um medical model for alcohol usage is there but still, you know, it's so widely accepted, promoted and um, penetrated into mainstream society. And you almost never hear people be like, oh, yeah, no, look, I have a, a major problem with alcohol, um, but it has no therapeutic application. Whereas, you know, cannabis, we've seen that it can help so many people with so many conditions and, and the, the list just sort of keeps on growing with how useful it can be but it just has a different place maybe in in parts of society and, and that kind of um process of naturalizing it into into the uh, lexicon understanding and, and broader community acceptance 
Yeah, it's been, I agree with you completely, Mike. Like, it's been actually such an interesting journey. When I think back, I remember as a kid seeing that ad of the egg being cracked into the fry pan and being like, this is your brain on drugs. And then I literally get Instagram ads for cannabis and psychedelic products now. Like, and that is quite a short time for these things mm. to shift. And in, in a way, it has actually been a very dramatic shift. And I think as you see countries or, you know, institutes that are brave to trial these things, the world doesn't fall apart and you actually can find beneficial things. And like for a, at a point, the average medical cannabis user was a woman in her 50s and 60s. So like you think of this, you know, sweet little lady using her cannabis products and you're like, okay, it's, it's the ideas we have in our head aren't necessarily what's out there and it's changing that narrative. And like with, um, we're seeing the same thing with alcohol. Like, I don't know if you've seen the news recently, but like alcohol use is declining. Um, and there's all these amazing, you know, non-alcoholic alternatives that are popping up. Um, and there's this one chart and it's a harm strat. Like it shows the harms that drugs cause to individuals and to society. And it's, you know, ranked from most harmful to least harmful. And the most harmful drug is actually alcohol. And then it's followed by like heroin or methamphetamine. And then all the way down the line, you've got cannabis and MDMA and psychedelics. And part of this is driven by just the number of people using them. But like a lot of people don't know that alcohol is one of the few drugs that can kill you if you try and stop using it if you're yeah. addicted. Yeah. Because it causes withdrawals and causes seizures. So like if you just look at sort of harm, um, it's interesting that the drugs that are legal are the ones that are legal. Mm. Yeah, totally. And, and like, you, there's some great comedy routines and bits out there about, you know, like the, the worst thing that can happen or the most dangerous thing that can happen with somebody, um, using cannabis for whatever reason is they will probably just eat too much pizza and then go to sleep, um, too early. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> compare that to drunk driving and all the other horrible things that can happen out there and domestic violence and these sorts of things. Just lots of um, terrible dangers. But we're getting off course. Um, I do want to talk to you a little bit about um, sort of the move, moving cannabis to make it more accessible to, to people and a little bit more about silo as well and how you're sort of developing the next generation of therapeutics beyond um, cannabis to basically uh, help people with a range of conditions that traditionally um, had limited a uh, number of solutions. It's growing all the time, of course, but traditionally limited to, to therapy and SSRIs in, in, in the drug treatment space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Silo is developing sort of new medications for mental illness that have been, been inspired by psychedelics. And maybe I can start by what I mean by psychedelics. And yep. The most common ones that people think about are magic mushrooms and LSD or acid. And these are drugs that change your, the way you think, feel, um, and things that you see. So they alter your perception. And that's mostly what they've been there for. I mean, like, Mike, what was your first introduction to psychedelics? My first introduction? Yeah, it's a yeah. really interesting question. So I, I don't have a lot of um, experience with psychedelics. I've had friends that have dabbled. Um, I don't know whether you consider, is MDMA a psychedelic? Uh, it's a psychedelic adjacent. We can, yeah, if it's in the family. Yeah, so so that's probably about as close as um, I've got in my earlier days, but never in a therapeutic setting, unfortunately. And um, 
you know, uh, working in the startup community and in, in startup spaces and having friends from all walks of life. A lot of them are um, microdoses of mushrooms. Um, I've read Michael Pollan's book. Uh, I, I've sort of seen a lot of the communication around the benefits of mushrooms. I have friends that are microdoses um, who are doing incredibly well and, you know, actively promote that. So uh, very, very positive um, associations that I've heard. But I've also, as somebody who follows the space quite closely, just been pretty buoyed by seeing some of the um, recent uh, approvals here by the TGA for trials involving um, uh, both cannabis, um, but also psilocybin. And I believe also MDMA-assisted therapies, particularly for people with end-of-life matters. I think it's St. Vincent's in Royal Melbourne. Uh, maybe it's Monash. Um, so, look, for me, that that's kind of my general exposure, but also the amount of media exposure out there is fantastic. There's some great um, Netflix series. I think Michael Pollan did a series on different drugs. There's um, the great communicator who's, um, you know, uh, what's what's the bloke from Vice who did that series on different um, – do you know who I'm talking about? Hamilton. Yes, Hamilton. So Errol Morris's son, Hamilton Morris. Yeah. Um, his Cornucopia is one of the great series if anyone's interested in different types of drug experiences and and, and sort of the mind-expanding opportunities there. I think he does a really great Gonzo-style um, take on on what that experience might be like. Yeah, I absolutely recommend that series. That's amazing. So yeah. My first introduction to psychedelics, I remember, was, you know, like listening because I was quite musical um in my earlier days and I remember you know hearing the Beatles and hearing the Beatles like before psychedelics and after and you're like what like what is going on here and like being exposed to Jimi Hendrix and I remember one of the I remember in high school doing a book report on um star tissue which was Anthony Kiedis' oh, biography what, what a book just, and what a song and like what a band and don't, they, they just sum it what? up completely it's just this, and so that was my understanding of drugs it's like it's mm. these crazy things that like creative people use mm. um, to make art and then there was definitely a shift sort of more recently with Steve Jobs and Silicon Valley and psychedelics being used for enhancing productivity and creativity in that sense so I was actually quite surprised when I saw it pop up as a treatment for psychiatry and I remember there was this article that said like psychedelics are shaking up psychiatry and it'll never be the same yep. and I was like what's that about like this is fascinating mm. So, mm. Um, I guess I, I'll just quickly explain how I got into this area. Yeah. Um, in 2021, I actually lost two friends to mental illness. Um, and they didn't fit my image of what mental illness was. You know, they had good friends, good family, good jobs, hobbies. It, it really shocked me and our community. And it made me realize two things. The first thing is that like depression doesn't discriminate and you know, no matter what your life looks like, it can impact you. Mm. And the second one was that we need we need better mental health care. Um, mm. And that's when I started researching what sort of what the latest breakthroughs were in mental health treatment because there hasn't been any since the 50s, really. And actually, a little fun fact was, you know, the first psych sorry the first antidepressants that were discovered were found serendipitously. It was actually medication for tuberculosis that they found had mood-boosting effects, and then the second class of antidepressants were also serendipitous. They were antihistamines being developed that had these mood-boosting effects. So we haven't had the best strategy for developing mental health treatments. But anyway, they came across psychedelics, and the research looked really promising. 
Um, and so for me, it was a no brainer. Like it was like puzzle pieces coming together. You know, I, at that point in my life, I was looking for the next challenge. I was missing doing research, like really getting in there and being on the forefront. Um, I had a relevant background and there was this serious unmet need. And at that time, Sam had found the silo. So I jumped on board early to help out with the communications there. And then I found my research role to support the development of psychedelics. Oh, it's just incredibly exciting. I mean, it, it is such an um, amazing space. And I think particularly people who haven't experienced depression before um, might not know what it's like, and uh, particularly certain forms of depression like treatment-resistant depression, and just you, you sometimes feel like there are no answers. And, um, you know, the, the statistics around the um, – uh, the success rates of SSRIs, you, you have been through them with me before, but um, not great. I mean, it's something like 50% will work and maybe only 30%, you know, in the longer term will get relief. Am, am I kind of on the right track with those numbers? Yeah, or? Quite, yep. absolutely. So um, the most common antidepressant class we have is SSRIs, which is mm. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And in Australia, we've actually got the second highest use of SSRIs in the world. Mm. Um, and I think it's like one in seven or one in eight people are using them. So like they're very, very common. And the statistics are that they will work for one third of people, like fully work for one third of people. For the next third, they'll partially work. So they'll have some benefit. And then there's going to be one third of people where treatment doesn't work for them. Mm. That's sort of where the psychedelics have really um, begun their journey is helping these treatment-resistant people. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think I think it's um, critical that there are other ways of doing things because, you know, they're, they're this new class of medications that are emerging, um, whether it's therapy-assisted or standalone or whatever the modalities are, are really offering an opportunity to get better for people who may otherwise um, unfortunately get worse and, and in the worst cases, like you discussed, take their own lives, which is just the most devastating consequence that's possible so to my mind it's crazy to not be exploring things that are kind of really out there and you know people sort of have this weird thing about like nature and medicines from nature but i think they forget that something like 70 percent of developed medicines already come from nature so where yeah. do they think where, where do they think like big pharma does all its stuff i mean it, it doesn't just it's not all things it has to be synthesized from somewhere originally right so yeah. You don't make things from nothing. Um, so, you know, that's part of it for me. But then I think it's also like we really just have to expand beyond that medical model of um, getting people better and just buoyed by sort of looking around online and sort of seeing videos of all sorts of things, you know, ayahuasca with um, with therapy, uh, mushroom-assisted therapy, reading some of the literature, but also then hearing the testimony of people who have had treatment-resistant therapy and then they might have a mushroom therapy experience and have um, certain realizations about themselves, their life and who they are. And the way they describe it is a really interesting, like a, a re... A re uh, reshaping completely of the neural circuitry uh, and they come out of it sort of anew um, and the way I would kind of think about it as a geek who grew up with computers is like you know do you remember when Windows had like a defrag thing where every now and then if your computer wasn't working you could hit defrag and it was like this thing where it would just clean up everything and then it would work better yeah you've nailed it Mike that's how I describe it <laughs> You know, like a, like a cognitive defibrillator, you know, they shake the whole system up and mm. let you start again. Mm. Um, and I guess I'll put 
let's discuss how psychedelics are actually being used in therapy. They're not, yeah. you know, currently antidepressants are like medications you take every day and you take them for as long as you need them. And that might be short amount of time or for the rest of your life. The way psychedelics are working is you take, this is specifically psilocybin, the active component of magic mushrooms for depression. We need that as an example. And you're taking psilocybin one, two or three times, just a few times. And it's given with a course of um, psychotherapy. So they'll have prep therapy, getting you ready for the psychedelic experience. You know, what do you want to get out of this? What are your goals? Also, this thing is going to change you forever. So be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got your dosing therapy. And that's so when you take the psychedelic, it's given under the supervision of two trained therapists. It lasts about six to eight hours. So it's a full day experience. And you're actually in this, this, room that looks like a living room like the idea it is meant to be a comfortable place because psychedelics are the kind of amplifiers um so set and setting is really important and that yeah. means your mindset so the headspace you're going in with and the setting is your surrounding so i would not recommend doing psychedelics at the rta for example you know that's not going to be a fun time And then you've got your integration therapy afterwards, which is kind of where most of the work happens. And it's trying to make sense of what was experienced while you were under the psychedelics. It's actually really interesting seeing the rooms that they're using for this. So like, Mm. you know, imagine this, you're walking through a hospital, super bright lights, very sterile. You turn the corner, you open up a door and it's just this beautifully furnished, softly lit room with this, you know, big, beautiful window looking out onto nature. I think it's a really, um, important, it's like, it's really important commentary on where medicine is going. Like it's, there's mm. going to be all of these different things coming through. And like, there's so much we don't know about the brain yet that's going to become uncovered. So mm. actually the most effective treatment for depression at the moment is electroconvulsive therapy. But the reason it's not used is because of like, it's so invasive and has pretty significant side effects. And then there's all these really interesting neuromodulatory um, treatments coming out, like transmagnetic stimulation. And like when I first heard about these, it just sounds like pseudoscience, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're going to put some energy waves into your brain and then your depression goes away. But then when you do, you know, placebo controlled trials or these controlled trials and you can see that these treatments are unequivocally working for people. Mm-hmm. And for me, that just goes to show that we are such we're at such an early stage of understanding how the brain works. And it's really cool that we've come across psychedelics, which are actually, you know, natural psychedelics have been used for millennia for therapeutic purposes um, through ancient cultures. And then things like MDMA was actually being developed as a um, therapeutic tool before it became an illegal drug. Like it was being mm. by psychiatrists for couples therapy and then mm. it escaped the lab and then it became illegal. So we're almost, we're kind of going back to the future in some ways. Oh, totally. It's really interesting to see the regression back through time to rediscover things that we kind of wrote off or just didn't have the evidence or buy-in for. It's like, you know, I hear funny stories. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about my dad and my grandfather now, uh, just as like case in point. But my dad tells these great stories about how when my grandfather was um, sick and I think he was post-op or pre-op and um, like they gave him just a bottle of cocaine to take home and just take to kind of clear out his passages and just get him feeling better. And I just thought that was hilarious. Um but, you know, that was used widely in the medical setting, you know, 70, 80 years ago. And then, 
you think about, you know, just how you, you, your folks grew up. And my dad was sort of um, six, child of the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, he um, he's done more of that stuff than I have psychedelics-wise. He's done LSD and he doesn't talk about it a lot, but it, it talks about the experiences that he had as being quite um, amazing and profound. And um, then you go back even further and just hearing about some of the ancient rituals and things that we call soma or, or, or different types of experiences where indigenous uh, communities around the world would use um, uh, plant medicines to commune with nature and find you know what they would consider to be a space of good mental health or peace um, and we've just got a lot to learn I think in our, our conception of what uh, what is in white society white uh, civilized inverted commerce society um, is kind of quite narrow in its conception I don't know if you sort of have the same feeling well I think there is a lot to learn. I also appreciate why things have become narrow. You know, we've had a few scary case stories along the way where medications weren't developed as properly as, as properly as they should have. I think of thalidomide, which oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, that that went widespread and it caused a lot of damage. And that's why our regulatory bodies are now very strict because once these things go out, you know, they go into millions of people. And unless you have the correct infrastructure in place to monitor that uh it's very hard to prevent damage and like i wish we lived in a world where we were so good at tracking things and collecting data and everyone did what they were going to say they were going to do but Mm. the reality is sometimes we need to be a bit cautious but i really appreciate that you know despite all of that we are going back to those things and i think for me that's what that is a, a really strong statement is that the whole u.s government has put its power into shutting down psychedelics and it's still coming back even after all of that scrutiny. And that goes to show that it's, it's not just hype. Like these things, these studies are being conducted under, you know, very keen eyes and they're still providing the results, these really promising results that suggest they're going to be effective. Yeah. But and they are it, going to be limited. Yeah, of course. And I think there are still a lot of problems with, um, I, I think about it in a way that like, um, the TGA or FDA really are opening a bit of a Pandora's box, which is the sort of more, um, conservative argument. But, you know, once you allow these things that are out there and, you know, you're going to see consequences that maybe you didn't expect to see as with anything new, but, you know, it's also about how can you help people who really need help as much as possible and try and focus that sort of treatment range and make sure the protocols are right. Mm-hmm. Um, so look, super, super interesting space. So with, with silo, tell me about what you're trying to do to make these drugs better for people, um, using the next generation of psychedelic therapies and what are the limitations at the moment around SSRIs current treatments beyond the fact that a lot of them just don't work for people. What does this next generation, um, have in store for, for people that are keen to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So like SSRIs, they're, they're pretty good. Um, but some of the drawbacks are they take about six to four to six weeks to start working, which is a very long time. And they can have pretty negative side effects, um, which can be persistent. And then like you can try this drug, it might not work. And then it can cause a side effect that lasts long after that trial period. Um, and psychedelics are offering sort of a rapid response and you know ketamine was the first rapid acting psychedelic sorry rapid acting antidepressant in this class and that that's been really exciting so they're offering a rapid response and treating more patients like a more proportion of patients and better effects but they're going to be limited as well so at the moment um psychedelic 
assisted psychotherapy, which the treatments that are being approved aren't just the drug, it's the drug plus the therapy. Um, yeah, their benefits are going to be limited and that's partly because they're really expensive and that's because of the, um, the psychotherapy component, like having, I don't know, if anyone who's seen a therapist lately understands you just, it's a very expensive process. Oh, yeah. uh, in, in addition to that, the people, some people are, you know, microdosing and that, there's some really interesting studies taking place in Australia. Actually, Vince Palier from Macquarie University is running this amazing placebo controlled study on microdosing. Um, but the drawback with um, microdosing is psychedelics like psilocybin might have cardiac toxicity, like they hit a certain receptor in the body um, that's found in the heart and can cause valvulopathy. So psychedelics uh, weren't designed to be taken by humans on a regular basis. You know, they weren't designed to be taken by humans at all. It's just a coincidence that something occurs in nature that humans found that can have benefits. Um, and on top of that, there's a narrow group of people that fit the criteria of eligibility for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And in clinical trials, we kind of joke as of these people being like unicorns because um, you need to have, you know, depression but no other condition and you need to not be on SSRIs and you can't have a family oh issue with God. this and, that. and like, you know, out of the patients that have been in the early trials, of the patients that were being screened, only 10% of people were actually ending up in treatment. And it's going to be amazing for those people. But, you know, we also don't want to create another treatment that's only going to benefit some people. And that's kind of where Silo's work is really coming in. It's about, you know, we're developing next generation therapeutics inspired by psychedelics. And our mission is to expand the, um, the reach and the benefits of these treatments to a broader patient population. Mm. So some of the compounds we're trying to develop, um, are like, for example, shorter acting psychedelics. And these would be like a traditional psychedelic where you still have the full subjective effects so you're hallucinating and you're traveling time and space and seeing all this cool stuff but it's for a shorter amount of time so you don't need to have that therapy supervision for as long um and then the other really exciting piece that i'm just going crazy about is this concept of a non-hallucinogenic psychedelic and the idea there is that these psychedelics uh could be having benefits apart from the subjective effect. So they could be doing something to your brain that's um, helping with the depression symptoms. And at the moment, this is looking like uh, neuroplasticity, which is the ability for your brain to form new connections. And this, you know, we can summarize this as learning. And like what psychedelics do is they take your brain back to a more juvenile state. And like the older you get, the more important this becomes because like the way I love this description, and I'm sure you've probably heard it. It's the skiing down a slope. So if you're skiing down a slope, over time, that groove, you're going to end up going down the same grooves. And then as you go down that groove, you just make it go, you know, you etch it deeper and deeper. And this is kind of what our brain pathways do as we get older. Like if you think of driving a car the first time you're 16, there's so much going on. It's so, you know, trying to, what is my speed? What, where am I in the lane? But then now you get from point A to B without even being conscious. Of it. Mm, and like, mm. that's what our brains are. They're amazing efficiency machines, but this can be maladaptive. And we see this in things like depression and substance use disorders. So what psychedelics are offering to do is to just clear that field, that ski field, you know, it's going to iron out the pink and it's going to allow your brain to form new connections that either haven't formed before or 
that haven't formed in a long time. And like we can see this during the psychedelic trip as synesthesia, which do you know what that is? Yes, it's the is the the thing where you can see music or something like that. Yeah. Yep. So it's like your senses become it's like literally cross wired. So it's parts of your brain talking that haven't talked before. Mm. And yet you can do things like taste music and hear colours. And that's just kind of an acute demonstration of what's happening in other areas of your brain. So they're very powerful tools and yeah, this whole non hallucinogenic component is suggesting that you can still have those benefits without the psychedelic experience. And why this is important is because there are groups of patients that aren't going to be able to try psychedelics, traditional psychedelics, either because mm. they have a history of psychosis or they're too scared. Because, I mean, some of the descriptions are amazing. Like my favorite one is Sam Harris describing his um, psychedelic experience. But there's also a lot of, there's just a big variety in psychedelic experiences. And this could hold people back from accessing a treatment that is effective. And I quickly just want to highlight the psychedelics, non-hallucinogenic psychedelics aren't going to replace the traditional psychedelics. Like that is always going to be there. And the evidence is going to show how important the subjective effect is. And my gut feeling is that there's two layers, like that subjective experience where you change your perspectives and experience things differently. That has its own beneficial value. And then you've got the underlying neurobiology. And that's probably going to be the most powerful treatment. But it's also amazing to have these other treatments available for people who can't access those classic psychedelics. Mm, look, it's really well said. And, like, you know, one thing, I, I love the grooming analogy, first of all, around that idea of, like, I'd love to get my brain freshly groomed, like a ski slope in uh, in Colorado. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, <laughs> you know, just get that fresh take. But I, I just got back from a holiday, which is why I look a little bit browner than usual. Um, I was in Western Australia. And, um, God, it was beautiful to just get a change of scenery. And, and I feel like sometimes a holiday to a different setting changes my brain a little bit. And that, that's probably the closest analogy I can give. And sometimes, you know, very rarely when I go hiking in nature or camping, um, I do feel a similar reset. Um, and, and maybe that's the setting part of what you're talking about. And just that kind of that, you know, defibrillation of the brain is, really powerful and i'm imagining much more powerful with uh therapeutic assistance one thing i think also to, to sort of mention is you know like um maybe there's some benefit in um not having a hallucinogenic experience because people have jobs and work and maybe want to be able to get the benefits um in regular settings like you know your kids or families or whatever probably there's going to be great benefit in maybe being able to not have an ssri but have a different therapy that's useful but you don't have to fully be on a trip while you're doing important things <laughs> absolutely like you've nailed that as well and it is so psychedelic like drugs do things in our brain um that are sort of meant to be activated as in like there there are mechanisms and pathways in our brains that these drugs act on so i think of like opioids reduce pain but the infrastructure in your brain is designed for endorphins so like it is there and it is meant to be activated so one of the things that i find fascinating are non-drug psychedelic experiences so mm. as you said like traveling, going overseas for the first time, mm. uh, a, a near-death experience. Like these, there are experiences that you can have in life that, as you say, like they shock you awake, they clear your expectations and your preconceptions and kind of let you start again. And these are all beneficial, um, but, you know, we shouldn't 
have to traumatize patients or like send them on a big Euro trip to be able to get them. Ideally, we live in a world where people can do those things. So being, you know, a lot more practical, it's going to be amazing mm. having these options. And like you said, not everyone wants to be tripping all the time. And this is, so, <laughs> I mean, we're really talking about psychedelics in a, a mental health treatment capacity, but mm. actually there is a new wave of research coming out where they could have potential for uh, neurological conditions and I'm super super excited about this as well so for things like stroke recovery um, dementia also headache disorders and if you think about those situations those non-hallucinogenic psychedelics are going to be super beneficial because they're going to allow the brain or well, in theory will hopefully um, the evidence will show what actually happens but in theory it's going to allow the brain to repair itself and form these new connections that's wonderful. It's so exciting. And and so where is Silo at with its research and, and development? Yeah, so we currently we're expanding into the US. We're headquartered in Sydney. Um, the team is in like they're in absolute focus mode. They're developing and testing new molecules and they're going through the pipeline. Um, and we're hoping to get a clinical candidate. So that's a drug going into clinical trials in the next couple of years. And we recently had this amazing announcement of a sponsored research agreement with Daiichi Sankyo, which is a Japanese pharmaceutical company, and they're world leaders in drug development. And like the reason this is so exciting um, is this is the first time a traditional pharmaceutical company has entered an agreement like this with someone working in this psychedelic space. And they're supporting the non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, sort of the more... Um, traditional pharmaceutical treatment but it's it highlights that this area is a really exciting area and it's one to watch oh, it's amazing can i try and say what you said daichi sankyo is that okay yeah oh, yes, good I, I mean, we're a lot of japanese uh, people in uh, wa where i was so i've been practicing my japanese which i've mainly learned from my wife who speaks limited japanese so it's very basic yeah. overall but uh it was fun, fun to try and say the words yeah that's a, i'm just getting off topic again but um <laughs> that is that is that's a huge announcement and, and to me that's another sort of real mainstreaming breakthrough so it's sort of you know, it's it's important for silo, but what what does it say about sort of the the more mainstream ex- acceptance of the work you're doing? It's phenomenal. Hmm. Yeah, the, the tides are turning. Um, Silo's also got they've got a uh, TED talk coming up, which is super exciting in Sydney. Um, and the theme there is tipping point. So I think it goes to show the times are changing. Like as you said, there's Netflix series on psychedelics. It's Psychedelics were F- no, TGA approved in very limited circumstances in Australia, which was the first country to recognize MDMA and psilocybin as medicines and provide access in a very um, specific context. But I think these just demonstrate that the the not it like not only is the wave coming, but like it is here and it is happening. And no matter and kind of no matter what you feel about it, what your emotions are, like the facts are. These treatments are showing promise and they're going to be, uh, you know, investigated and hopefully developed into really effective treatments. 
exciting and if people don't uh, get a chance to see that tedx talk there's a great um clip on i think it's your linkedin or silo's website where you talk to dr carl which i just really enjoyed as well as sort of an early stage talk about your work so there's lots out there um talking about the amazing work you're doing and um also another really good youtube that i watched in preparation um for this conversation with uh one of your um key partners there the the, the fellow who talks a bit more deep into the science um so that that was really interesting and he talked a little bit about computational chemistry in that so i just wondered like um because you know tech ai ml it comes up in every conversation now um how is um emerging tech helping you to really sort of um progress towards breakthrough uh treatments at the moment uh, that must have been a video by sam bannister that's the one the that's the one and chief scientific officer and he's a He's a medicinal, chem, uh, medicinal chemist and was, he did his postdoctoral studies at Stanford. And that's actually where he got interested in startups and commercialization of science and then brought that to Australia and like exposed all of us. And now we're all infected. <laughs> um, but what Silo is doing, so they take two approaches to developing these new psychedelics that have never existed before. And one of them is taking traditional psychedelics and using traditional um, chemistry techniques to change the structure. And so with chemicals or molecules, small changes can have big effects. Like there are certain psychedelics, one of which is the, the beginning psychedelic. I think it's mescaline. You know, mescaline will last, mescaline will last like four to six hours. And if you change like one molecule, you can make that a thousand times stronger and last, you know, 48 hours. So there's a lot of changes we can make to it. And this is how medicine works. Like you said, um, I think of aspirin it was actually originated from tree bark. Opiates come from poppies. Cocaine comes from coca leaves. So this is um, quite a common process of drug development. So then Silo is taking it to the next level using AI and computational chemistry. So the way drugs work is um, you've got these receptors in your brain that are kind of like locked. And then drugs are the keys. And they're going back to the endorphins, opiates analogy. Those are both two different keys that open the same lock. So what we can do with um, technology is screen just these insanely large libraries of compounds, like millions and millions and millions of them using uh, molecular docking. So in the computer, you create the padlock and then you throw the keys at it and you can narrow down which keys are likely to actually open the lock. And then, then we take those, we create them, and then we test them in the lab. And what this does is, one, it allows us to screen larger libraries than we would ever get to mm. in the lab. It makes it faster and it makes it cheaper. Mm. And what's really, really exciting is Silo has now discovered psychedelics that have never existed before. So like a completely new structure. So it's really opening up the world of what is possible um, in a therapeutic chemistry sense. Oh, it's it's mind-blowing stuff. And I, I guess the ability to not have to manually run an experiment on every potential key and lock combination uh, is, you know, we live in a great time and age, don't we, for this kind of thing? And like, it's like there was, they did this amazing um, experiment where they actually entered the receptor, like the padlock using VR, and I think it was like, honey, I shrunk the chemist. Like they were able to go down there and like hang out with the molecules and see how they're interacting with this receptor. Like it is insane what technology is doing. And I like, 
you know, five, ten years time, the whole world's gonna look so different. I feel like I feel like that might be a special place, Delara, would be like, you know, in the VR with the molecules, like would be pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like that that that's that that would be one I would enjoy that too. That would be quite an amazing experience. But yeah, I mean you you're doing some really amazing things and I think it's just so exciting. How can people connect with you and learn a little bit more about you, a little bit more about silo and all the breakthrough stuff that you're doing? Yeah, um, okay. I come visit Silo's website, which is silo P S Y L O dot bio. We also have an amazing LinkedIn. So like that is what I do for Silo is I run their comms. So I do their social media and I create this newsletter for them. That's a monthly update on the research and the news. And I do this cute little science in 60 seconds session where I'll take sort of a concept that, you know, it'll come across. Um, the inspiration will be like questions I hear from the public or misconceptions. And I'll break that down using evidence and explain the concept to them. And that's probably the best way to see. Um, the work we're doing and the work mm. I'm doing for Silo because running other people's social media, you kind of end up being drained and don't have enough time for your own presence. So like come check out yeah, the Silo website, LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter. Yeah, and I subscribe to the newsletter and I love it. I think it's fantastic and highly recommend everyone else jump on board. Get in touch with Delara, go to the website. Delara, thank you for being with me this morning, uh, cross countries. Do you have a minute to uh, debrief? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike. Really appreciate you providing this platform for me to nerd out on psychedelics. My absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.